0: Uh, today's message is entitled the politics of provision, and we're going to talk about the intricacies and difficulties of providing for the needs of the church for a young pastor named Timothy. Now we can make this academic and ancient, or we can make it real practical. So let me make it practical right off the bat. Let me bring out a question that I believe that if you have not dealt with it in the past, I would be shocked. If you have not dealt with it in the past, you will be dealing with it either tomorrow (laughs) tomorrow. or moving forward. And here is the big question. When is helping, helping? And when is it enabling? If you have ever had a family member that came to you for assistance, if you ever had a friend that made some decisions in their life and ended up needing some help from you, you've wrestled with this. You've wrestled with the idea of when am I bringing benefit to them? Or when am I band-aiding something that needs to be fixed? What, let's say, and let's make it the, one of the most tough decisions that I've ever seen. Um, let's say you have grandkids and your grandkids are not being provided for by your children. You want to provide for your grandkids, but you don't want to enable the kids because they're making poor choices. When do you draw that line? When is it too much? When is it not enough? When are you being stingy? When are you not setting boundaries? These things affect all of our lives. And what's so wonderful about scripture is that even though we're talking about a different scenario, it applies to our lives. And today what I want to do is give us some practical ideas on how to navigate through some of this. So as we begin, let me just give you three things that go through the minds of the elders here at the church as we're trying to determine who gets assistance here at Bridgeway. Because we have a benevolence program Uh give you an idea on how that works. Every year we budget out money for people to have emergency funds if they need it, because we believe that part of what the church does is what all Christians do. We are a distribution house for God. So as the tithes and offerings come into the church, we try to go out and meet the needs, not just do the spiritual program portion of it or the discipleship, but we also try to meet and distribute funds to people who are hurting. Now that is not uh, a huge amount of money. It may be to you, but, uh, it goes really fast. So what we do is we have a process by which if people need financial assistance, they come in, they fill out a form. And we have the form for tracking purposes. Our job is to be good stewards of what you have given us. So we have a tracking form that we go through. And that way we know how much we've helped somebody in the past. Have we never helped them? What was the scenario before? What is the scenario now? What are the details and the facts? We then have a pastor look it over. They bring it to the elder board. We talk about it depending on the amount of money. And then we go back and get in contact with that person and see if there's anything we can or cannot do. Along with that, we do different things about giving advice and financial counseling and things like that. We produce resources for them. But let me ask you this. Let's say you're one of the elders and somebody slides a piece of paper across to you and says, so do we help them or not? That's a weird question because I haven't lived with them for years. I don't know their scenario. All I'm doing is looking at a piece of paper. So how am I supposed to know if that is helpful to them in the long run or am I merely handing them money to make them go further into difficulty. Our job is to ultimately benefit the flock, not to hurt them. And we're not necessarily here to give them something that they want if it will be ultimately detrimental. So in our minds, we have three things at least that ricochet around in our minds every time we see one of those forms. And so here I would like you maybe to chew on these three for your own personal lives. Number one, I want us to begin with a heart to help. We must begin with a heart to help. There must be a good reason why we do not help. A good reason may be I don't have any money. Okay? That might be a good reason to to not help because you don't have those resources. All right. That's, That's fine. Or it may be it's not a good idea or this is not a good time or this, whatever it is. But just make sure that if a need comes before you, your attitude is, I would love to help that can I do that? Would that be a good idea? Start with a heart to help. All right. Number two premise, and this is really, really important. Not every need is a need. Not every need is a need. Now it can be a stated need, but it may not be a need. And we'd say, well, come on, we can be pretty basic about this. I can't make my mortgage payment. So that's a need. That's called shelter, right? I mean, wouldn't we all talk about basic needs, food, water, shelter? Come on. I can't make my mortgage payment. All right. You sure that's a need? Let's say, for example, you would purchase a house in an inflated market. The recession hits, knocks it down. And what God is asking you to do, even though it's incredibly uncomfortable, is he's asking you to downsize. What if that downsizing is a process of growth It is a necessary need and actually you're not supposed to be fighting and smashing your head against the wall for a high house payment every day. Maybe it's not a need. Maybe the true need is adjustment of lifestyle. What if that is a need? Then it is more of a want. I would like to remain in this home because this is where I've made my heart rest. I would like to remain in this home because to downsize would be very disturbing I would like to remain here because we are in the school district where my kids have all their friends. I understand there's valuable reasons to remain where you are. The idea of downsizing for me and my family would be highly disruptive. I get that. But what we're talking about is what is God doing? And he's shooting long-term. Not every need is a need. All right. Last one, not all help is help. Not all help is help. Sometimes help hurts. I have a number of people in my own personal life that I have observed and worked with for years, and they continue to make the exact same mistakes that they did as a teenager. Because every time things got really rough in their lives, someone bailed them out. Every time their character remains the same and their situation skips across the surface and they never grow up that's not helpful long-term you're hurting them. You're cutting their legs out from under them. You're not allowing them to strengthen their muscles. You're not allowing them to grow up. So not all help is help. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. What we are about to see in scripture is that God is all about generosity and all about boundaries. How do those two work together? Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 1? 1 First Timothy chapter 5 verse 1. Page 840 in the Bible is handed to you. The fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet is this. How we deal with needs says something to others about God. How we deal with needs. Now that may be we as a church, that may be we as elders and pastors, or it may be we as in you and your home life, how we deal with needs. If we pass by someone asking for money on the street, it says something about God. If it is a Christian, because remember we are God's ambassadors. They will look at us and say, how does God feel about us? And they will look at you. So what are you telling them that God thinks about them? Sometimes you will express that God is stingy and that God is not interested in helping their need whatsoever because it's all about your problems. Another time you may express that God has no boundaries and you're a doormat. Neither one of those are acceptable. So where do we draw the line? First Timothy, chapter five, verse one, let's just read the first two verses and then we'll pray for the word this morning. Talking about relationships and managing uh, issues in the church for a young pastor, Paul starts with this. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. This does not just stand for pastors. It stands for all of us. So how are we going to manage these politics? Let's pray about it. heavenly father. Thank you for this morning that Lord, these are real issues that we're facing day to day. And even though you're using Paul to disciple Timothy, we can learn, we can be a fly on the wall and we can learn what you might have for us. God, give us wisdom. You said in your word that if we ask for wisdom, you would give it to us graciously. And with abundance. So we pray, Lord, that we would be wise stewards of what you've given us. And that we would be proper distribution houses for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So let's see what he has to say to this pastor. Imagine here's Timothy who we know he's under 40 and he has to correct and encourage and exhort and admonish and do all the things that a pastor has to do. What happens if they're older than he is? Well, there's some practical advice that Paul gives him. First one, he said, do not harshly rebuke an older man, but treat him as if he were your father. Well, how do you treat your father? It's interesting because You would do it with respect. You would do it in a very different way than you would just a man. The word harshly rebuke actually comes from the Greek word to strike. No, you don't get up in their face. You don't shout from a distance. You don't try to bully. You don't try to push your way. You're not arrogant. But you come in with respect. And the word that it says to treat him as your father is the same word that is used for the Holy Spirit. It's paraclete. It says, come alongside him to guide him. There is a certain amount of gentleness. There is discipline. There is strength. But there is a certain amount of involving yourself in the situation, not shouting from far away. Then we're to treat the older women that need correction, comfort, whatever it is, as if they were our mothers. What does that mean? It means with kindness and humility. Um, My mom recently Um, I just found out had a whole bunch of stuff just stolen from her house. And I was just thinking, you know what, for a single woman who's later in life, for someone to prey upon that, there's some huge violation there. And I instantly get defensive and protective over my mom. Well, in the same way, we realize that here in this church, There are some ladies here that are older than myself My job is to treat them with absolute respect and to get as defensive for them as I do about my mom, right? How do we treat the younger men? Well, we treat them as brothers My job and our job is to treat you guys as equals It's not to put you down. It doesn't matter your age remember I started here very young. So if I look at you every time I've talked to high school group or if I've talked to kids of any age, I always let them know that they are valued and respected in my eyes. doesn't matter. Kids are incredibly valuable to the kingdom of God. And so my job is not to Lord things over them, but to look at them eye to eye. How do we treat younger women? It says that we are to treat them like our sisters with absolute purity. There's a sexual tone to that saying, listen, what are you doing? Remember Timothy is a single pastor and he's in sin city. And he said, when you deal with them, you deal with them completely as if she were your sister, where there's no overtone whatsoever. You're not using them in your mind, heart or anything else. You may have to come in with comfort because you're a pastor, but when you comfort them, you comfort them like you would your sister you comfort them, you challenge them, you uh, help discipline them and disciple them in the sense of how would I do that to my sister? I have a sister in my life. And I know that there are times that I've had to be very strong with her. And there's times when I've had to comfort her when she was hurting, but understand everything is above board. That's how it must happen with all young women here. He moves on. He said, now let me talk for the rest of the time about a specific issue going on at Ephesus. It has to deal with widows. And we're going to talk a lot about widows today. So it says this, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Now that is a word play in Greek. Widow means deprived, deprived from your husband. It says, give proper recognition to the deprived who are really deprived. Why are we talking about widows? Widows are a big deal and they're going to be treated as a big deal for, in my opinion, three primary reasons. Number one, in the ancient world in Paul's day, there was no such thing as government assistance. There was no Medicare, there was no pension, there was no social security, there was no any of that. There was no way to take care of someone who is no longer working, primarily a woman. So, number one, there was no help except through family or the church. That's why we're talking about it. Number two, in that day and age, remember, ladies, you did not have freedom in society. You could not go get a job. You were completely limited and locked down. You only had a couple options outside to get a job. Most of those involved prostitution. No matter who you were, no matter what age you were, there was not an availability. Ladies, you were either under your father's roof or you were under your husband's roof. The only time you could run a business was out of your home. But what if you didn't have a home? How do you run that business? So they were trapped. Third reason why we're talking about widows is that they're precious to God. That's why all throughout the Old Testament, God said, I am a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow. There was all types of provisions that were driven into the culture of the Jews to take care of widows because they didn't have anyone else. It is not like today where women have options. It is not like today where women can get a job. It is not like today where women are empowered to thrive. It was very, very, very limited and they were literally left to the wolves. So God came in and he says, even in the New Testament, through the book of James, James said, you want to know about pure and faultless religion? We're all talking this religion stuff. You want to know that really is important? I want you to do this, this and this, and I want you to help the widows and the orphans. That's what I care about. God has always had a soft heart for those that have been turned away and are all by themselves. So, he says, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Verse 4, we go from generosity to boundary. But if a widow has children or grandchildren... These, meaning the children and grandchildren, should first learn to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. What did he just say? Church does not kick in until family kicks out. It's almost like insurance. You have two insurances and one doesn't come in until the other one's done, right? All right, the church does not get involved if family exists. Why? Because family is the primary responsibility. You go, wow, that must be a Christian thing. No, I already told you it's a big deal in the Jewish community. But it wasn't just the Jewish community. Check this out. It was so heavy in the Greek community that during the time of Solon, it was legalized that if you did not care for your parents, you lost all civil rights. You literally were shut down in society. Aristotle said a man should rather starve to death than not care for his parents. Talk about societal pressure, right? In all those economies, including the Roman civilization, you take care of your parents. It was absolutely expected because they cared for you. You turn around and care for them. And he says right here. The church shouldn't excuse me. I just went through puberty. (laughs) I have no idea where that just came from. That was awesome. Donuts and coffee. Apparently (laughs) the church should not kick in and remove the responsibility and learning. He said, you got to learn how to take care of your parents. It's not going to be an immediate natural concept because it demands from you. It takes from you. It's a sacrificial move, but the church isn't supposed to remove that strain. They're supposed to force that strain that it goes back to the family. It says the widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. What does that mean? Well, It means that if a woman is abandoned and her heart is God, she knows that she can run to her heavenly father or her heavenly husband. And she spends all her time pouring out to him and saying, God, I have been abandoned. Lord, my husband is gone. My family is either dead or abandoned me and I have nothing. But that woman is locked in her focus to God. But the widow who is living for pleasure, indulgence, living it up, doing her own thing, all about selfishness. He said, you know what? She's as good as dead. She walks around. She's no use to God or church. She's all focused on herself. It's not just because someone is older and abandoned that suddenly makes them of high quality and character. Sometimes we just have messed up spirits. So understand, it's not like every widow or every person that is in a dire situation gets help. As a matter of fact, your character matters, how you lived matters, how you're handling yourself matters. It is not like an entitlement. If you want to ever hit a hot button with me, come at me with an attitude of entitlement. I will freak out on you, right? I hate that. This whole idea of, well, of course I deserve it. No, you don't. You don't deserve anything. Get out of here. If you come in, you come in with humility and say, I will need some assistance. That's different. But if you walk in and go, I deserve this, we have a problem. I don't like that attitude anywhere in America. I don't like that attitude anywhere in the world. But in the same way, you cannot just play the system and go, hey, I'm your parent. You better support me. So there, I'm just going to do that. I'm going to be a jerk to you. I'm going to be horrible to you. I'm going to be nasty to your wife. I'm going to do anything I want and you have to deal with it. No, I don't. It's called boundaries. So no, we're not playing that game either. There needs to be a different spirit. It says, give the people these instructions. Verse seven, meaning Timothy teaches this to the church and to the widows so that no one may be open to blame. And look at verse eight. This is once again, it put the personal responsibility slides back to generosity and protection. Verse eight is one of the most powerful verses that will blow us out of the water. But here's what makes it more intense. The first word, the first word says, if, do you see that the better translation is since loaded in the Greek term is the assumption that Paul is talking about. This is already happening in Ephesus. He's talking about specific situations. It's not a, Oh, if this ever happens, It's a Timothy, this is happening and we need to talk about it. So this is a real situation. Check this verse out. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Well, that's pretty clear. Do you provide for your immediate family? You better. Because God's watching You do not just go, I'm going to do whatever I want to do and feed myself. You provide for your immediate family. To make it a little bit more intense, the word for provide means to anticipate, think ahead, see the need in advance and plan for it. If anyone does not observe, watch and plan for the needs of his immediate family... He has practically in action denied what he says he stands for, Christianity, and has become more useless to the kingdom than a non believer because it's a violation. Wow. See how there keeps going back and forth boundaries, graciousness, boundaries, generosity, boundaries, selflessness, boundaries. We're gonna keep spinning through that same concept. Look at the next phrase. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, is well known for good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Whoa, that's quite a, quite a qualification list. First of all, what are we talking about? Why is there a list? You guys have a widow list on you? Anybody got a widow list? I'll check it up against mine. See if we have the same players, right? I'll trade you one widow for another, right? Here's the deal. What are we talking about? Why is there a widow list? A widow list for what? Well, every other time I've ever read this until I did some more research, I always assumed it was merely a list for people that would receive help or financial assistance. That's option number one. And that could very well be what it is. What's so odd about that is that if we're talking about a list of people who have needs, why are there so many qualifications? Number one, number two, what about men? And number three, what about families? What about a 59 year old widow? Doesn't quite make the cutoff, right? She's way too young to have that. What about her? Is this a list of financial assistance that literally no one under 60 is going to get any help? Something seems weird about that. So the second option upon examination and study is that this was a list of a certain group of widows in the church that became basically an order of leaders. You're like, what? Where did that come from? What you are about to hear is a phrase in this passage that says they make a pledge, a pledge to Christ. Remember, if you were a widow over 60 in this culture, you had no other means. The church would then take them on full time in support. They would become completely dependent under the church. But the church historically has always expected that if someone received benefit, they would give back. They would, in the early church, I have always referred to this ancient document called the Apostolic Canons. It was different ways that the church worked in the ancient world. It said in there, the widow should then have wool and make things. For other members of the congregation that they would pray for the congregation and shield the congregation that they would serve that they would do these things. If they were supported by the church, they brought benefit back to the church. Is that what this list is? Or is it option number three, which I believe it's both that if a woman was to receive assistance, they would basically sign a covenant with God. To enter into basically being a nun, they would say, I will never get married again. I will lock into this concept. I will serve the church. I will be part of a special group who are supported by the church but do ministry on behalf of the church. That suddenly makes sense of all the qualifications, it makes sense of all the th- words that are about to be used. And quite frankly, it completely changes the tone of this passage. Let's keep moving on. Let's look at it. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60. Why 60? In the ancient world, two things happened at 60. One, it was a considered a retirement age. Two, it was considered the age when you could finally focus more on spiritual things without having to be dominated by practical manners. Now, Granted, that was also an estimation that it was less likely in that day and age that you were going to go get remarried. Now, in today's day and age, man, that age is about ninety (laughs) nine. All right. So a little different now. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60 and has been faithful to her husband. Her husband, he's gone. What do you mean faithful has been faithful Remember when I went through the list of elders and deacons, there was a qualification that said they had to be one woman men. Do you remember that? This is the flip side. It's a one man woman. Same exact phrasing. It means that she was faithful in heart, in deed and action to her husband when he was alive. Character and your past matters. Look at the next phrase. And she must be well known, meaning people know this stuff. She must be well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children. All right. What does that mean? Well, one of two things. It either means her own kids who are now dead. How do we know they're dead? Because she wouldn't be on the list. Does that make sense? Because her family has to take care of her or they've completely abandoned her and disappeared. Either it means she brought up her own children in the Lord and cared for them and ministered to them and was a good mom, or it means, and a certain group of widows actually rescued orphans. Why? Because in the Roman society, the way that it worked is if you had a baby, you'd lay it at the father's feet. If the father picked it up, you'd keep the baby. If he turned his back, you'd throw it away. You take the baby outside the city gates and you lay it down and whatever happens to it happens to it. Now, there's only two groups that would come and get the babies other than wild animals. And that was bad guys because the bad guys would go get free babies and they would raise them up for men to be gladiators and women to be prostitutes. That way you make money off of them. So to rescue them from the bad guys, some widows Who no longer had their own children in their house would go rescue the babies raise them up as their own babies and say these are mine. Is that what it means? Either way these good deeds are echoing out. What else does it say? She should show hospitality. She must be generous when she was able to with an open heart and an open home. And she should be known for washing the feet of the saints. Now, that either means literally, because in that day they still had foot washing, you would come in with sandals on, your feet were dirty, you didn't want to make the house completely dirty, so you would wash their feet in a bowl at the front of the door and then allow them to come in. That was what a slave normally did. So the whole point and practical purpose of this is to say, was she known for doing humble acts of sacrifice to the church? Was she known for helping those in trouble, whether persecution personal challenge and was she known for devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds training younger women ministering to the church stuff like that that's an awful lot of qualifications to get financial assistance I think it's bigger than that I don't think it's about benevolence I think it's about having them enter into this order a couple hundred years after this was written There was actually an official order in the church of widows that were leaders. This formalized in the history of the church where there was elders, deacons, pastors, widows. And they would go from house to house and minister to the sick and take care of the needs and give counsel and help the younger women get trained up. And they would work on behalf of the church. All right. With that background, which is so crucial, the next one becomes far less offensive. All right, finish it out and talk about the younger widows. Just for fun, let's read through it without thinking of what we just said and see if it's offensive to you. As for younger widows, don't put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus, they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. For some, in fact, have already turned away to follow Satan. All right, if you didn't know that background, ladies, are you offended yet? Here's what I just said. If you're under 60, girls, you all know you need a man, right? I mean, you really, uh, you're pretty much going to fall apart. Okay. So here's the deal. You're going to try not to have a man, but we all know you need a man. All right. So along the way, you're going to want to have kids. You're going to want to be close to a guy. You're going to want to have that. So you're really not any good on your own. I'll Just tell you that. And then if you are on your own, it's almost positive that you're all going to become idlers. You're just going to sit around. You got nothing to do. What? You got no skills right? So you're just going to basically sit around. You're going to go to from house to house and we all know you're going to start gossiping, right? Cause that's just your nature. And so you're going to end up gossiping. You're going to tear the whole thing apart. So really single women are a huge, massive drain on the church. <laughs> all right. Unfortunately, if we read through our passage and we don't do our context, that's what you just heard. That's why people keep going. The, the Bible's so mean to women. Stop. It's not at all what it says. Let's put it back to the framework. What is this list for? The list is for creating an order of women who are committing the rest of their lives to never getting married and to work for the church and do what the church is asking them to do and to give up all their personal rights and dedicate themselves to the ministry. All right. Now let's read it. As for younger widows and younger means fifty nine. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires, that word means craving for relationship, craving to be with a husband, to have a family, that relational pressure within them to connect. For when their sensual desires overcome the contract they signed, the dedication to Christ, They will want to marry, thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Meaning, ladies, why in the world would you go on this list? You have so much vibrant life ahead of you, aren't you going to want to connect with other people? Why would you suddenly drop into nun status when you don't know what's moving forward? That would be very unwise and don't even allow them to get on this list. Because you're only going to cause problems in their lives. In my personal opinion, I feel that because of the vow of celibacy that priests take, they run into great difficulty. I think it's putting undue pressure upon them that they are not able to withstand. And they end up snapping and cracking in different areas. I don't believe it's fair, especially for young men. So in the same way, he said, don't let young ladies sign off the rest of their life because they don't know what's next. Imagine this. Let's say you lose your husband at 35 in your grief, pain. You say, I never want to be with another man. My heart was with my husband. I only have a desire for him. Uh, Only one that can ever take care of me is Christ. I have no way to make a living in this society. So I want to join the order. The church isn't going to allow you to do that because what if you heal? What if you do want to move on? Well, unfortunately, then you start jerking the church around because you said, oh, I promise for the rest of my life, I'm only going to, and then you change your mind. It's not fair. It's disturbing. Then if you put a young woman on this list, you're going to destroy her. Look at the next phrase beside they get into the habit of, you know what that word means in Greek? It means they have to learn it and have it pressed into them because it's not natural to them. No, they're not naturally going to become idlers. The job is going to force them into that. They will become be start being idle and going about from house to house. Why? Because that's their job. What's the job of the widows? to go from house to house and hear personal information. And they do not in society have any other outlets. They do not have a home to take care of. So what are they supposed to do with their time? Only women who are a little bit further in life where they can settle their own spirit, have the ability to be able to go, you know what? I can focus on this alone. I'm not in the nesting phase. I'm not in this phase of having to build, build, build. I'm able to slow down and focus on the Lord. He said, why would you force younger women into that and distort distort their spirit? Not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies. Why? Because all they hear is personal information and go from house to house. Eventually, you're going to say stuff you shouldn't say. Why? Because you're still relationally craving connection. So I counsel younger widows to marry, have children. And rule your houses so that you don't give the enemy a chance to slander. Don't let the enemy come in and go, see, look, I just destroyed the church. Check it out. Ladies, he said, if you are going to crave connection, I want you to feel free to do that. Stop being hampered by being on this list. Go pursue relationship. Now, it's interesting, gentlemen, I want you to pay attention to that one word. It actually in Greek says that she is to rule her house. I thought you were the head of the house. Oops, we got a bit of a conflict, right? Why? Here's what it means. Gentlemen, as the head of the house, it's your job to make sure that the household is functioning under God's standards because you'll be busted. But I will tell you this, if your wife is a stay at home mom or your wife primarily runs the house, she's the expert. You better pay attention to her because she knows what's going on and you don't have a clue. She is the in house expert and consultant. So if you're going to manage your house well, I'd put her in charge. We move on. It says Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan, either followed false teachers, gave up, and just married a non believer. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, meaning let's tie this all together. Let's say there's a widow in your family. She should help them and not let the church be burdened with them. So the church can help those widows who are really in need. Okay. Let's turn a corner on this. Boundaries. Generosity. Boundaries generosity. I want you to pray through this scenario. The only advice I can give you here in your own practical lives is this. Get advice from someone who's not emotionally involved. If you're struggling through a family situation of who should I support? How should I support them? You need to get someone who's not in the family to sit down with you and listen. You're going to be embarrassed. They're going to look back at you and go, you've spent how much on that person? You're going to be embarrassed and not want to share all the information. They need to know all the information. They need to be wise. They need to be able to help you sort it, but stop letting it all stay in your own head or just between you and your husband because it's too much pressure. Get counsel. Let someone wise look at it and determine, Hey, this is benefit to your children, or this is a benefit to your friend, or this is a benefit to your sibling or to say that it's not, but we have to have healthy boundaries along with a heart of generosity. All right, let's turn it back over to you. Here's what we're going to do as we close. There's no video. There's no song. We have an exercise. And here's the exercise. I'm about to pray. And there are some of us in this church service that have had a really, really hard time even listening to anything I have to say. Not because I was necessarily boring. although that's possible. But because you have a need that's so heavy on your heart, it's distracting you. Financially, you're falling apart. Relationally, you're having a hard time. Your kids are going ballistic. Your parents are in deep need. You're hurting. You're sick. You're having a problem. For all of you that are hurting, when I start to pray, I want you to stand up where you're at. And then when I say amen, I want everyone around you to gather around and pray for you. Now, everyone's going to go, I don't want to pray out loud. That freaks me out. You don't have to. I need one person who's standing there that's comfortable praying out loud to take the initiative to ask that person, what's your prayer request? Share your prayer request very quickly. This is not a long treatise on why life is horrible. They take that information and they pray for you. Everyone else just remains silent and agrees in prayer. To agree in prayer means laser focus on what that person's saying. And when they say something you agree with in your heart, you spirit, you quietly say in your mind, Lord, that is absolutely what I agree with. I want all of us to pray. I don't want one person leaving here feeling like they have not been loved on or prayed for if they're hurting. We're only going to do that for about five minutes. We're going to play some music. I want you to be able to close up prayer. If you do not have anybody to pray for, I want you to say a general prayer for all the needs here and then feel free to be dismissed. Okay, but let me go ahead and pray. And I want all of you with needs to stand up. Heavenly Father, we lift these needs to you right now as a family that, Lord, we can't fix all their financial problems. We cannot fix all their relational problems. But, Lord, we can pray and we can ask you as their heavenly father who cares for them more than we do. Would you meet their need? Would you heal them today? Restore them today? Give them wisdom today. Help them today. We lift them up to You in the name of Jesus. Amen.